All right, everyone. We've got Rob Leshner from Compound, who I think needs uh, no introduction. Rob, welcome to uh, Empire, my friend. Yeah, excited to be on the show today. Yeah, man. You going by Rob or Robert these days? You know, I think I've always gone by Robert, but, you know, some friends call me Rob sometimes. So Over, over some beers, it's Rob? Yeah. All right. All right. So I, I, get the, I get the moral of the story. Call, call you Robert today. So anyways, Robert, we, uh, we wanted to have you on the podcast because uh, you, you sent out this tweet which said, make no mistake, uh, the government wants to kill one of the most important and innovative, segment, uh, innovative segments of the U.S. economy, which is crypto. We're coming on the back, and that tweet kind of comes on the back of signature closing, SEC forcing Kraken to shut down staking. Um, what else happened? Coinbase's Wells notice, uh, CFTC sued Binance. Uh, it appears that Operation Choke Point 2.0 is, is here. So I think we just want to kick off this conversation and, and, and get your take on, on the backstory of this tweet and how you're feeling about things right now. Yeah, and it's a great question. So that tweet was really an acknowledgement of what most of us in the industry are seeing and experiencing, in, you know, um, which is, you know, Operation Choke Point 2.0. Um, you know, there's, at this point, it's almost, you know, not a controversial you know, um, statement that there is a coordinated effort to debank the crypto industry um, through, you know, um, not entirely, you know, normal policy means or legislative means behind the scenes in a way that is not normal. Um, very similar to how Operation Choke Point 1.0 tried to debank a legal industry um, in a, you know, um, inappropriate approach approach. And we're seeing that right now with crypto. Um, you know, you mentioned both, you know, Silvergate and Signature Bank. You know, these were the two primary US on and off ramps between the banking system and crypto. Both of these went from, you know, functional to non-existent in an incredibly sh short amount of time following statements by um, you know, banking industry regulators to the banks, by legislators like Elizabeth Warren publicly, and by um, a number of, you know, uh, actors in the ecosystem that were, you know, somewhat excited for these banks to fail and for their activities with crypto to no longer be functional. Um, you know, besides all the things that have already been written, you know, great examples of this are that, you know, even post failure, you know, the entire banking apparatuses um, of Silvergate outside of crypto are functioning normally. Um, it's, uh, sorry, Signature. Signature was sold to another bank and all of their customers, with the exception of crypto, crypto customers, are up and running. All of the crypto customers were debanked in that process. Both the Signet payment system and the crypto balances were not restored. And the bank, having gone through you know, uh, a sale, Transition from being one that serves crypto companies to one that does not serve crypto companies. Silvergate, likewise, is 100% offline for crypto companies. The Silvergate exchange network and all financial services that they were providing are gone. And at this point, there's almost no you know, mainstream supported uh, infrastructure for you know, legal institutions that interact with crypto to interact with the banking system. Most of the uh, economy has shifted over to Cross River Bank, which is just a single bank of not considerable size, which in, has become essentially the lone bridge between banking and crypto organizations. But, you know, pretty much the map was wiped clean, you know, in an incredibly short amount of time due to government action um, in an unanticipated way. So, you know, my tweet is really just an acknowledgement that there's an effort to debank crypto and it's been unfortunately incredibly effective. This episode of Empire is brought to you by QuickNode. QuickNode is an end-to-end -end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about QuickNode later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Synthetix, the liquidity layer for DeFi derivatives. With Synthetix V3, any protocol can now tap into Synthetix liquidity to bootstrap derivatives markets. 
You'll hear more about synthetics later in the show. This word, uh, unanticipated, is in, like is a uh, is an interesting word. Were you expecting this at all? And if you were expecting it, like how long did you know? Kind of feel like this was coming, and if and if not, um, yeah, it's interesting. This kind of took everyone by surprise so much. Well, this took everyone by surprise because in a lot of ways this was like an extrajudicial, you know, process. You know, yeah. this didn't come through the legislative process where, you know, people had a chance to form policy. This didn't even come through like administrative policy. This came through, you know, behind the scenes actions that were taken in a short amount of time. And so I don't think anyone had the ability to anticipate that crypto would be debanked so quickly and so effectively. You know, there was a lot of, you know, fear following the collapse of FTX that there would be you know, strong actions taken against the industry as a response. But I don't think that most individuals within the industry anticipated that, you know, the attack against crypto would be so widespread and so rapid. Yeah. Have you got any sense of um, like the why behind this? I mean, anyone's guess is as good as mine. I don't have any, you know. You don't want to. Uh, you don't want to put on your tinfoil hat with me and uh, and start to uh, get into some of the theories. Well, I mean, I think the simplest theory is that you know, following the collapse of FTX, this provided you know a justification that people that were already biased against crypto had, and this gave them the justification that they were looking for. Um, you know, simply put, I, I, I think it made you know the timing easier. Um, to attack crypto. And so, you know, why, you know, do people want to shut down a legitimate industry? It's hard to say, you know, there's a lot of aspects of crypto that are, you know, extremely positive. And I think in the long-term best interest of regulators, of policymakers, of our economy and of, you know, all financial markets. And so, you know, it just, in my opinion, it was just like, you know, um, coincidental timing, but I think it's a reaction more than anything to FTX. Yeah. How has this impacted, uh, your guys's product strategy at, at compound? Cause I, cause I, I mean, we were following the, um, the compound treasury launch pretty closely and like the build out of that. I'm just curious how you think about those kind of products in the wake of like a U.S. regulatory crackdown. Yeah. So Com compound treasury, you know, was envisioned as this bridge for institutions right to access DeFi going through um, a compliant, you know, central counterparty and having a middle layer between institutions and DeFi. So, you know, this has been, you know, announced elsewhere. So this is not like breaking news, but, you know, at Compound Labs, we have been in the process of shutting down Compound Treasury. Um, you know, it's a function of multiple things. One, the business climate has shifted. Um, the idea of using a you know, middle layer between you and a smart contract doesn't look as appealing as it did before the collapse of FTX. Yep. You know, there was a time when institutions wanted to interact through a counterparty, but I think now everyone is unbelievably, you know, skittish about custody of, you know, their assets and like having any layers that are unnecessary um, make less sense today, you know? And so it's really a market reaction more than anything else. Um, but, you know, we, we are, you know, shuttering um, the compound treasury product, which, you know, is a small amount of collateral damage and just a very meaningful shift in market structure. But it's really just a result of institutions and their preferences changing in the wake of massive exchange failures. Hmm. Remember the DeFi mullet? FinTech in the front, DeFi in the back. I, I, you make me think that that might have uh, been the wrong thesis here, actually. <laughs> well, I think long term, the DeFi mullet might be like a really strong thesis, which is, you know, you're going to have, you know, transparent, autonomous protocols on the bottom and institutions that are like business forward and serious on top. But really, the question is what's in the middle and how does that work? Yeah. And, you know, long term, I do think the DeFi mullet is going to win it's going to be a viable theory and you know it's we're just going to have to as a society like figure out how to deliver the benefits of DeFi to a wider more institutional audience yeah it's also just a tough business the aggregator business model is also just a tough business model um 
it provides a lot of value to users. Like if you think about the DEX aggregators, really a lot of value to users, but just a kind of crappy business model. Yeah, it's one of the things we found. I mean, it was not, yeah. you know, it was not um, a successful business, you know, but that's also just a function of, you know, the macro interest rate environment. So one of the really big trends that's happened over the last year is interest rates in TradFi have eclipsed interest rates in DeFi. And, you know, one of the symptoms of that are, you know, banks like SVB blowing up that just, you know, took too much interest rate risk. But the other is that you don't have people trying to grab DeFi interest rates as much as they were before. They're much more willing to say, let me grab those T-bills <laughs> as opposed to grabbing DeFi interest rates. And so that that's really the other macro shift. And so when you combine, you know, these two mm -hmm. things like extremely skittish and less trusting of any counterparty, even, you know, ones that are as credible as you can get, you know, Compound Treasury was rated by, you know, S&P Global, a rating agency. It was like designed to be, you know, as good of a counterparty as you could have. Plus this macro shift, you know, it means that middle layers between institutions and DeFi are just going to have to rethink how they go about things. Yeah. Been thinking a lot about that, like what pulls, basically what pulled people into DeFi was, I mean, kind of in part, you guys kicking it off with like kicking off DeFi summer and then people kind of came for the token incentives and, and, and kind of the games almost, you could say, and they stayed for the yield. What do you think pulls people back into DeFi? And then what, is that the same thing that gets them to stick? Well, this is a long-term statement. This is not like a short-term statement. Like I only really think about like, you know, things in the five-year, 10-year sense. The things that are going to pull people back into DeFi, um, I actually think are the virtues of DeFi that are being, you know, brought to the surface by all of this calamity. So the virtues of DeFi are that you're not going to be, you don't have, you know, this opacity, which has led to a lot of problems, right? Um, that's the first major thing that's going to pull people back to DeFi. And the second is going to be the automation and the composability of DeFi. This is like, it's going to go full circle. And these are like really right. OG statements. But the things that are going to pull people back to DeFi are the benefits of self-custody, right? You're not going to have to trust an exchange to be lying to you or not or telling the truth about how many assets they hold. You know, FTX, you know, is such like this glaring example of like, you really can't trust what they say, <laughs> right? Versus DeFi where it's, you can validate yourself where pretty much any like, you know, trained person on their own can validate, you know, the balances of a DeFi system or the health of the DeFi system in real time, like compare those two things. It's like, take their yeah, word yeah. for it or validate it yourself. If you don't have to be afraid that you're being lied to, it's an incredibly powerful thing. And so I think like DeFi is, you know, superior to CeFi there. Okay. The second thing that's going to pull people back is automation. You know, this is, you know, a cost argument, but DeFi works 24 seven autonomously with no real managers or upkeep. Compare that to a CeFi anything. You know, long-term, I think like autonomous smart contracts just on their own are going to be seen as just like a much better tool for implementing financial markets than how financial markets and products are implemented today. You know, it costs literally nothing for the smart contract behind Uniswap or MakerDAO or Compound or whatever to operate. It's truly unfathomably awesome. And that autonomous nature of it, you know, is a huge magnet for mm. developers and markets over time. Um, you know, just the amount of effort that has to go into maintaining legacy markets from reconciliation to like accounting to like, you know, all of these things, it's just like horrendous. So like automation is going to be a second thing that just pulls people back over time. And we might see it in interesting ways. Like, you know, I can imagine like, you know, a distant future, you know, people, you know, will choose to, you know, purchase an asset, you know, in DeFi over the other one, because just like the upkeep is less um, operationally. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that I think is going to pull people back into DeFi is composability, right? When, and there's like a network effect to composability that you don't often get in traditional markets. So, you know, if you're a customer of, you know, E-Trade, what's happening at Fidelity doesn't really matter to you or doesn't really benefit you. 
But when you're in DeFi, what's happening at you know Uniswap benefits from like the changes that are happening in MakerDAO, or benefits from the changes happening, right. yeah. or benefits from you know everything else that's getting built because it's all interoperable in a way that you know CFI and TradFi are like completely siloed. Like you know, if you have a a balance at Coinbase, it really doesn't matter what Gemini is doing because you can't use them mm-hmm. together. But you know, when you have your own balance in DeFi, you benefit from all improvements to the different, you know, applications and platforms, you know, in parallel. And so that's a really powerful feature that, you know, is kind of like this hidden tailwind behind everything that I just think develops a network effect that gets better over time. And so eventually, you know, people are going to be, you know, coming back to DeFi in full force. It's not about games. It's not about, you know, whatever, like, you know, momentary thing, like the virtues of it are so strong that eventually DeFi is going to win. And I think that all of the calamity of late is just reinforcing of that fact. It makes me more confident about the virtues of DeFi. Let let me ask you this then. Do you, um, there's kind of like two views for like mass crypto adoption right now. There's, I'd call them like the Bitcoin route and the ETH route. The ETH route is that you are spot on composability, um, uh, faster, cheaper, uh, composable systems will eventually build better products. And yeah, we're in a bear market, but eventually DeFi is just a 10x better product than traditional capital markets. And that pulls people into the system. And voila, we've built L3s on L2s on, on ETH and like, boom, amazing system. Um, that's what I'd call almost like the ETH view. Um, and like the view of, I think a lot of people right now, then there's the view that's maybe come to the to the front in like, the last 30 days, which is the Bitcoin view, which has kind of been quieter the last couple of years, which is, hey, maybe we, the system is actually kind of falling apart a little bit. And um, we do need a way to store capital in like uh, places where collateral, there isn't collateral risk. And um, I think we kind of all saw the the virtue of, of Bitcoin in the last couple of weeks as people were trying to move capital outside of the traditional uh, financial system. So I'm curious, like, do you think it's, are you like all eggs in one basket? It's going to be ETH. You're not worried about the system breaking. You just think better products will be built. You're like all eggs in the Bitcoin basket or like a little bit of both these days. Yeah, I, I would say I'm like, you know, 90, you know, 10 on this where, yeah. you know, I think in terms of a technology, I think, you know, the ability to build transparent, autonomous, composable financial systems is more powerful than the ability to have a censorship resistant financial asset, you know, long-term. I think having a censorship resistant financial asset is awesome. It's so important. It's like, you know, the proof that creates everything else, but, you know, long-term, you know, it's relatively arbitrary, you know, that Bitcoin will have value relative to everything else on earth. You know, I personally don't own any gold. Okay. Not because, you know, I don't think gold is cool, but like, I don't own any gold, but because it doesn't really do anything. It mostly just sits there. And, you know, it's not that useful of an asset. I'd much rather own a company or shares of companies than wood gold. Um, And I think of Bitcoin the same way, you know, if you need something that, you know, is, you know, truly just a financial asset that doesn't do anything. Bitcoin is great and its properties as that are great. (laughs) But I don't think, you know, having another, you know, just like financial asset is as important as the technology that proves out the programmability and transparency and autonomy of a whole new generation of finance, which long-term I think is going to be more valuable and more important. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you there. Um, I, have a, I have a couple more questions on the regulatory side of things, and then I want to get your uh, thoughts on on some other stuff. Um, I guess just like as a founder and a, as a builder of a protocol, when you see the the U.S. kind of cracking down on this, do you? And then you see, you know, Circle looking to get regulated in France, and I think it was Gemini this week was announcing they're going to potentially launch derivatives in Europe, and Coinbase is leaning heavier into their European business, like. How do you think about kind of weighing the pros and cons of of operating this protocol that clearly the 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 most powerful three letter agencies in the U.S. are not 
uh, fans of these days? And, and, and how do you think about like, look, is it, is it even worth it to build in the States right now? Well, my advice to, you know, most founders now, when they ask my opinion is, you know, if they have the opportunity to build offshore, you know, I encourage them to do so, you know, at this point, the majority of my time is spent at robot ventures as an investor, right. Um, talking to founders and, you know, this comes building offshore, Robert, does that mean like you are living offshore? Does that mean your customer base, you're only targeting folks outside the U S like, what does that actually entail? Yeah. I mean, it's all of the above. Um, you know, the best case scenario for founders building new things right now, unfortunately, and this is a massive, you know, unfortunately, like I wish <laughs> the reality was the opposite. But, you know, right now, if founders have the opportunity to live abroad and build abroad and organize their companies abroad, they should um, simply because the U.S. is unfortunately incredibly hostile to innovation within the crypto sphere right now. Um, no matter how well-intentioned organizations are, no matter how hard they try to comply, it really doesn't matter. Um, when you look at Circle and Coinbase and, you know, Gemini and all of these institutions that have hung their hat on compliance, you know, for years, they've been in the crosshairs. That should be all of the evidence that people need <laughs> to know that, like, there's an easier path right now. Like the best intentioned actors yeah. are being targeted. Um, it's not, you know, the frauds and, you know, the scams and, you know, the truly like malintentioned operators in the ecosystem. It's the best intentioned, most compliant organizations that are being targeted, which, you know, is generally not how the rule of law works or should work, but it's the reality. And so, you know, I think most innovation is going to start occurring offshore. Um, it's clearly detrimental to the long-term interests of the United States. It's unfortunate. Yeah. I wish this wasn't the case, but like most founders now are just reconsidering where they build from because the U.S. is incredibly hostile and a lot of other countries are becoming more and more embracing of innovation. And I think like the tables have turned and that the benefits of U.S markets aren't necessarily worth it anymore to a lot of new founders. Yeah. What what about what about existing founders? I guess what about yourself? I mean, how long have you been you've been running Compound? Well, I don't run Compound. Uh, uh, when or when did you start? I don't know the how I'm supposed to say it, but like when did you yeah. kick it off? Yeah, so I founded Compound Labs in 2017, which is a really long time ago at this point, and the world was very different in 2017. Right. Um, you know, if I had to, you know, start from the beginning, I don't, you know, I, I think I would take my own advice and probably locate offshore. Yeah. Would you, are there other things that you would have changed? Like, would you have not launched a token or would you have done it differently? I guess what, what would you change now with, you know, obviously the, the insight of hindsight? Well, I think, you know, the compound protocol is actually like a really successful example of how yeah. to build a system that's not controlled by, you know, a centralizing agent, um, you know, and all of this was developed in the open as sort of a playbook example for society at large of how a protocol can get created and, you know, handed off control to a, um, a community in a really strong way, you know, following, you know, what we knew, um, you know, I, I don't think there's that much I would do differently because I can't go back in time. I can't go back to 2017. Like, you know, I can only give advice to builders, you know, yeah. in the ecosystem in 2023 um, as they think about these things. Yeah. Have you thought about, um, so you've been, uh, so you kicked, kicked off uh, Compound Labs in, in 2017. Advice to new founders is to start, like kind of start offshore, spending more and more time at Robot, Robot Ventures, which by the way, I heard some numbers. I, I heard uh, you and Tarun are having a, quite a good couple of years at, at robot. So hats off to you. And, um, uh, like, have you thought about when, when it's time to pass the reins at, at, uh, at compound labs? Well, I'm not even sure what you're referring to. Um, but you know, I, I'm sure we're going to, you know, especially as we start to shutter the compound treasury product, rethink, you know, nice. what, what opportunities there are for institutional products in the space, you know, at this point, compound labs has been focused just truly on institutional products. Um, and so, you know, we're probably going to be rethinking what that means, but I think in some sense, I'm going to continue to 
operate and invest and spend my time in the crypto ecosystem. You know, I don't really see myself, you know, stepping down or leaving the industry. You're, you're not, you're not going to go work on AI, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> I am not going to go work on AI. I've Good. tried to do a little bit of chat GPT four. Yeah. Um, I haven't used, you know, Dali yet, but like, you know, I'm not the best query, you know, right. Yeah. Now. You know, I am. Uh, so I met with the WorldCoin folks last week and I'm trying to, uh, decide whether or not I think that is like a wild invasion of privacy or whether or not I think that once uh, GBT3 can or GBT like five or six rolls out the ability to like do things online for you, whether WorldCoin like saves us from a from that kind of world. So, yeah. So. I think the true measure is actually going to be when like chat GPT is like actually funny because like right now you can tell mm. like that it's like just a really bad AI. When you ask it to like write a joke or like be funny in any way, it's just like, it's so shockingly not funny and it just hasn't figured that out at all. And like, I, you know, I think it passes the Turing test when it can like tell a joke, like yeah. actually like be funny. Yeah. Well, I think it's tough to tell a joke in text. You need like a voice almost, or maybe you just needed to create incredible memes. So, but it's funny. I was showing my, I was back in San Francisco. I was showing my parents, uh, uh, GBT four and my mom remarked, she goes, you're using please and thank you all the time. I was like, oh man, I didn't even realize I was doing that. Yeah, so, you, you got to say please and thank you to the robot overlords, you know? You do, you do, exactly. Yeah. So, all right, man, I want to I wanna shift gears a little bit and um, get your take on, um, actually, this is kind of like same gear, but like real world asset stuff. And um, so Coinbase just put out this piece on like flat coins, real world. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time inside of Maker and we talk a lot about um, about real world assets. I'm just curious about your like overarching view on like whether or not it makes sense to pull off chain assets on chain. Um, yeah, I'm curious to get your take on that. The answer is yes. I mean, I, I personally think that pulling off chain assets on chain is the superior approach to pulling on chain assets off chain. And, you know, you mentioned Maker, so I'll give you a great example. So, you know, MakerDAO is actually getting quite good right now at taking assets from on-chain to off-chain. They're taking DAI yeah. <laughs> off-chain when they let like, you know, institutional counterparties borrow DAI directly from Maker and they're getting good at taking stable coins, which serve as collateral, off-chain to invest in assets off-chain. So MakerDAO is doing one approach, which is called take things from on-chain off-chain pretty well. So they're like building their like muscles around like moving assets off the blockchain. I actually think that's the wrong approach long-term. I'm actually way more excited about the inverse of that, which is taking assets from off-chain on-chain. So like, how do we get, you know, all of the assets that exist around the world to be represented on-chain? Like when all of these assets from like stocks to bonds, to commodities, to real estate, to art, like when all of these assets are represented on-chain, they're all going to be more useful. They're all going to be more programmable. They're all going to be more composable. And like, that's what's going to usher in, you know, a utopia of blockchain, so to speak. Um, but until then, you know, I, I, I think a lot of what's happening is the opposite, which is assets are going from the blockchain to the off chain, um, which is the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like moving uh, like internet native news like onto print. It's like, that's probably not the... Exactly. It's like yeah. starting a newspaper to write about crypto. It's like, why? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, though who, who had the magazine? Wasn't it Bitcoin mag had a, had a nice little magazine. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But that was early days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but it's true. Bear markets are building and everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using QuickNode, you are building on hard mode. So QuickNode is, is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, QuickNode offers unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24 seven customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no gigabrain developer, but 
I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics all leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business, that's when we get excited and that's when we want to partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security, let QuickNode handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknode.com, super easy. You can use code EMPIRE. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code EMPIRE. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. All right, folks, it is time to talk about one of my and a lot of your favorite DeFi protocols, Synthetics. Synthetics has been pushing the limit in DeFi innovation since 2017 and has just started its most exciting transition yet with Synthetics V3. With Synthetics V3, any protocol can now tap into Synthetics liquidity to bootstrap derivatives markets. The transition has already started with Synthetics Perps. Synthetics Perps taps into Synthetics's liquidity layer and is a new primitive that developers can leverage to launch DeFi derivatives. The Perps product has been going incredibly well so far. Hopefully you've seen it. It's had some great traction hitting 500 million in daily volume this March. We know that liquidity rules DeFi and Synthetics is becoming the modular liquidity layer for DeFi derivatives. As a trader, you can trade Synthetics Perps with low fees in over 20 different markets at Quenta.io, Decentrix.com, and Polynomial.fi. And this opportunity set keeps growing with 10 new partners in the pipeline ready to launch integrations on top of Synthetics, including front ends, structured products, and institutional offerings. The team gave me a sneak peek of all this stuff. It's really cool. Would really recommend you check out Synthetics.io forward slash Perps to learn more. And if you're looking to build on Synthetics, hop into their Discord server, reach out to the team directly, make sure to tell them that Empire and Santi and Yano sent you. Again, synthetics.io forward slash perps. You can also hop into the Discord server and reach out to the team directly. Any like updated thoughts on like stable coins now that we're on the other side of this kind of bull market and like deep in this bear, like thoughts on stable coins, what the future stables could could look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So you know, the most interesting event in my mind um, was, you know, two weeks ago or so when USDC depegged. Yeah. Um, you know, I actually thought that this reaffirmed the value of stable coins um, and the risks really well in like a very concise argument, which is all of the money behind USD coin was there. Um, you know, they had $3.3 billion at uh, SVB, which temporarily on the weekend of SVB's demise. Nobody knew if it would be there come Monday. But USD coin, I'm going to paraphrase the numbers. You know, there was $46 billion of USD coin and $46 billion of assets backing it. And even though it was like, you know, so obvious that like this was a one-to-one dollar pegged stable coin, the market price didn't reflect that. You know, the NAV of one USD coin stayed at a dollar. But the secondary market for USD coin went down to 88 cents on one wild tumultuous weekend. And the the reassuring thing is the fact that like when everyone sort of came to their senses, you know, it was obvious there was still a dollar backing each USD coin. And they were convertible one to one with dollars and the whole system worked exactly as advertised. And obviously USD coin should be worth a dollar. but as it depegged, it just showed that there was like an irrationality that was present in the market where I feel bad for everyone who sold USD coin at 88 cents because they lost a lot of value. <laughs> um, but like they sold it because of like an uncertainty. And I think that actually creates a really strong, you know, roadmap for stable coins and how they're going to work in the future, which is the collateral behind them shouldn't have to operate just on banking hours, right? The failure of USD coin for that one fateful weekend was because you couldn't actually mint and redeem it over the weekend because the traditional banking system Mm -hmm. doesn't work on weekends. That's the crazy thing and the crazy opportunity. If USD coin 
was mintable and redeemable during the weekend, you know, on crypto hours, which is 24 seven, there never would have been an imbalance in the first place. And I actually think that like, you know, there's a lot of ways which the financial infrastructure can upgrade over time. But the most important one is just the concept of weeking out weekend hours. Like finance doesn't operate two out of seven days per week. And, you know, 16 out of 24 hours per day. Like that's the crazy thing to me. Like finance only operates a very yeah, one of the one of the big issues with SVB is just that they closed down at 4 p.m. so people couldn't get their wires out. Like that was one yeah. of the one of the core issues here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. SVB closed down at 4 p.m. So what are you gonna yeah. do? And like stable coins, even when they're one-to-one backed, aren't one-to-one redeemable. And USD coin wasn't one-to-one redeemable for two days and many hours from Friday, you know. 4 p.m. to Monday when everything opened back up again. And so, you know, the stablecoin is still beholden to the legacy financial system. And I think that creates the opportunity, even for one-to-one value-backed stablecoins, to improve. Um, you know, I, I leave it to, you know, the thinkers mm-hmm. <laughs> over at Center, which sponsors USD coin. But this is a huge opportunity um, that I think is going to be solved over the next couple of years. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, uh, so Coinbase launched base, um, and they just put out kind of a call to action, like ideas for builders, I think they called it or requests for builders. And um, one of the ideas was for what they called flat coins, which is basically uh, decentralized stables that essentially track the rate of inflation. Um, And I guess you can kind of get this in like the bond world, like an inflation tracking bond or something like that. But their their idea would be like, you'd have an entirely crypto native stable coin that tracks the rate of inflation. Um, and um, I'm just, yeah, I, w- I want to get your take on this or like maybe other stables out there that aren't USDC, like what are, uh, what Frax, uh, like Ampleworth. I'm, I haven't looked at Ampleworth in a while, but like some of these, I'm just curious to get your take on decentralized stables right now. Yeah, so th- this is a really fun, you know, question because a decentralized stablecoin that doesn't rely on one-to-one backing but relies on over-collateralization, like MakerDAO, like you know, some types of stablecoins, yep. um, can use anything as its target peg. So, when you think of the stablecoin die, it doesn't have to target one U.S. dollar. It could target one point one U.S. dollars. It could target one point oh three U.S. dollars. It could target one ether of what it's worth. Um, the only thing that's required is that there's more collateral backing it than the value of the stable coins that are represented. So it doesn't have to use, you know, a target of one USD. It could use one Euro as the target. You can easily make a Euro over collateralized stable coin that's decentralized. You can really make an over collateralized, al- you know, algorithmic stable coin, you know, using any target you want. And so, you know, I really think what, you know, base by Coinbase is asking for is if they're going to have a decentralized stablecoin on that chain, why peg it to the dollar at all? Why not peg it to something, you know, non-dollar, right? People have talked about pegging a stablecoin to like a basket of currencies, kind of like, you know, special drawing rights or like, you know, a broad basket. You can peg it to anything. And so I actually think it's a cool idea to peg it to an inflation index I think the downside is going to be that like consumers aren't going to like get it, so to speak. <laughs> you know, if you have like one, you know, we'll call them empire, you know, an empire is a stable coin that like, you know, is pegged to some inflation basket, you know, each empire is going to be worth, you know, less over time. <laughs> or like, even if you do the inverse of it for its peg, like, yeah, it'd be worth more over time. It's going to be worth yeah. like $1.1. It's like, as a user, it gets a little confusing and it's less usable than a stable coin. Like if you have a, you know, an empire buck that's worth $1.2, like it's hard. I to basically think that would never, that would never take off until, or un- unless you had a world where something like the U S dollar was experienced, hi- experiencing hyperinflation. Yeah. And like in that world, the world where biology wins and like, right. you know, that's, that's <laughs> not a fun world. And like, to be honest, like, no, you know, I'll just retreat to a, a cave and like not worry about yeah, this stuff. I'll join you. I'll join you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also not sure people are in that world are like moving their capital into like this kind of like low, low market cap, like inflation hedge stable coin that's run by some like a bunch of protocol devs. 
that kind of feels unlikely to me. So, um, other things, Robert, I want to get your take on app chain thesis. Um, we talked about this several months ago when you were on the pod, but I want to get your kind of like updated take on the app chain thesis. Um, you guys, if I remember correctly, had these had a plan to launch compound change, uh, ch- uh, compound chain on what was it called back then? Substrate or the yeah, Polkadot sub- SDK? Yeah, Substrate um, part of Polkadot. Yeah, and I'm just curious to get your like. So I think Cosmos like really hit a narrative six like six or seven months ago. Uh, kind of fault a lot of people were thinking about following in DYDX's uh, footsteps. Then you've kind of had the like the L2 narrative on ETH has really taken off. You had like Coinbase launch base on on the OP stack. Then you have like Arbitrum doing a lot of uh, having a lot of conversations about L3s. Like, what is your updated framework around how you think about app chains? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think an app chain as an idea is incredibly valuable if you need incredibly specialized <clears throat> performance that you can't get from deploying on a main chain for some reason. If you're trying to do one thing, you know, a lot of times per second, an app chain makes a total sense. Um, some of the best app chains, you know, so far historically, you know, have been, you know, either things with low usage or, you know, special deployments of things like DYDX, you know, using Starkware, where you've gotten a lot of transactional throughput that like would have been horrible on an L1. Um, I don't think there's that many applications that have the usage to warrant an application-specific chain or deployment, frankly. And the ones that do are well-served by having an app chain. And the way I think about it is an app chain is like a semi-quasi-composability with other things in crypto. You know, if something's on its own chain, the only composability you get is like via exchanges that sit above everything for you to be able to move assets from like one chain to another or bridges that are built between one blockchain and another. It's like really, you know, quite clunky to have any sort of like even value transport between blockchains. You're generally either using exchanges right. or bridges, which create new assets. Um, An app chain is like similar in that like the composability is not great. If you look at any of the Cosmos app chains, right? They're all useful. They're actually, it's a great platform for app chains. Like they actually all work. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Um, you know, a lot of people have been able to use Cosmos <clears throat> to launch a chain to do their thing. And they've had a lot of success with that, way more than, in my opinion, Substrate and Polkadot has. But even within that, like the user experience and the composability between applications, yeah. is like it's rough. You know, if you've ever used Cosmos, it's not easy or <clears throat> intuitive to like move assets and value between their ecosystem, like, you know, chains. They all kind of feel orphaned, even though they're not. It's just like, it's a really complex user experience that I don't think fits for a mainstream population. Like, yeah. If you're extremely technically sophisticated and like you're a real degen, like you navigate that stuff. But most of my friends are not going to be navigating like yeah, Cosmos yeah. chains. So I mean, I like if a protocol gets big enough, like maybe use um use Uniswap for example. Like Uniswap probably like leaks some value through MEV and like they need like there's there's probably some reasons why they would go build their own chain. Which I don't know if you ever read like Dan Elitzer's piece on this. Um, but like someone like Uniswap, who's gotten that big, does it ever make sense for them to launch a Uniswap chain? I mean, either they at some point, you know, will have a chain, right. which then like people are going to have to very deliberately move their assets to Uniswap chain in order to trade <laughs> on the Uniswap system. Or they're going to have to, you know, figure out MEV in some other way. But like, you know, MEV is the core enemy of Uniswap. You know, I tried to trade on Uniswap like a few months ago and I'd forgotten about MEV and I just submitted a transaction. I was like, oh, wow. Like I should have like, you know, really lowered the, you know, percent slippage tolerance because I got ripped up by MEV. Like, who yeah, you got hosed. Yeah. You got hosed. But you got to imagine like, like, so do you think that that is behind the Uniswap wallet thesis? Like where basically, where would, where do you think MEV will end up accruing? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think long, and MEV is so complicated, but right. I think long-term MEV is a deadweight loss and it's going to get cut yeah. out through technology. Like it's a function of right now, blockchain's being a really bad 
platform, frankly, to trade on because you're basically telegraphing what you're going to do to everyone, even if it's like, you know, as most transactions are telegraphed to everybody. You know, you can obviously send it directly to a mining pool and all these things, but like that you accidentally yeah. for the majority of usage. Yeah. And so it's just not a good platform to combine trading and broadcasting information. Hmm. Yeah. By the way, MEV plug for anyone who's listening and who likes podcasts. We're, we have another podcast called Bell Curve. We're hosting with uh, Hasu. I don't know if you know if you're if you know the Flashbots team, Robert. Yeah, but yeah. We have, uh, yeah, a whole a whole season on MEV with uh, my co-founder Mike and, and Hasu, which is uh, pretty interesting. Um, yeah, and I believe they have some really cool ideas on how to like take all the MEV and redistribute it, and to like, right. you know, say like, okay, it's a reality that like you're broadcasting information, but how do we? offset that in other ways and like spread out the MEV and like do all these other economic things to change the system. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a nice pivot into value accrual and just like how you think about this, which is kind of a related question. Like, do you think value ends up getting accrued? Let's let's keep with this Uniswap example. Like does value get accrued to the Uniswap token uh, and, and, or basically the uh, Uniswap protocol, the Uniswap like mobile app essentially, or their app, or like Uniswap Labs, which is like the builder on top of all of this stuff or whatever they're calling it these days? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, right now, I would say, you know, at this moment, there's really only two things that are accruing value. There's the miners slash MEV, which is capturing value from users. Right. And the users who benefit from this thing existing and are like, hey, I had no ability to swap XYZ token. like this thing is cool. It's not listed on some exchange. I love Uniswap. Or they're like, I want to trade Ether and stable coins all day. And there's somewhat low slippage. And like, I can do it in my pajamas. And like, that's awesome. Um, I, I really see all of the value right now, just for like users and people taking value from the users. I don't really see any value temporarily. And like, this could change over years going to the protocol or going to the labs or going anywhere. Um, yeah. You know, the primary benefit is that this awesome protocol exists and it has tons of users and the users use it because it makes their lives better. And the miners and MEV searchers, you know, make their money off of those users. And like, that's the ecosystem. Yeah. Do you think there's any chance uh, Uniswap turns on the fee switch? You know, I don't follow um, Uniswap governance too closely. You know, I have yeah. been delegated some uni tokens and I vote when there's like really important proposals or contentious yeah. ones. Um, so I don't pay too much attention on a daily basis at all. But, you know, last I saw on their forums, there was like some debate over whether or not there should be a fee switch. And the last I saw it was like, why would we experiment with the most important pools? Like, why wouldn't we want to like experiment with the least important pools and fees? Because like, what if we wreck, you know, the most important right, pools? Right. Because like the, the proposal was like, implement fees on USD coin ether, like the big boy, you know? Yeah, we'll see. I feel like there's no, with, especially with this regulatory, uh, I mean, tying it back to the beginning of the conversation, I feel like there's no, even if it makes sense for the protocol and for everybody involved, there's no way they do it in this market. So. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not part of no. the Uniswap world. No. So. <laughs> um, all right. Let's, uh, let's start to wrap this up about like, just thinking about the future a little bit, Robert, when you, so like you obviously spend a lot of time on the investing side at Robot Ventures. There were a couple other things that Coinbase had like a request to build. One was the flat coins. Uh, the, the three other was on-chain reputation, on-chain limit order books, um, and, and safer DeFi, as they called it. I'm curious what you think. I don't know if any of those would fall into this answer, but like curious what you think are like the missing, the missing protocols or the missing things right now in DeFi. Yeah, it's interesting because all of these things have been tried at some point in one way or another on Ethereum, on Solana, on Avalanche, like none of these things are radical ideas, like frankly. Um, and I think the more important question is like, why haven't any of these like actually really worked or taken off or like where have they worked and taken off? So reputation is a really, really tough one <laughs> that, you know, frankly is like, you know, probably best used for like actually extending credit to somebody. Yeah. Right. That's like the primary use case is like, oh, you know, Robert is good. I can lend him 10 USD coin. Hooray. Like I know, you know, he has some reputation on chain. If he steals the 10 USD coin, 
no one should lend to him again. It's like, it's primarily a thing tied most closely to like unsecured credit. Um, and I think the market for unsecured credit and DeFi has like kind of imploded over the last year or so. Like a lot of the like projects that were like exploring this, like Maple and others had a really tough time because it turns out all the biggest players borrowing unsecured in the ecosystem were bad. Alameda was bad, right? 3AC was bad. It was like all the people that were borrowing using their name were not people you want to lend money to. And so I think like even the idea of unsecured credit is like taken a hit and taken a backseat and like has decreased like the relevance of reputation, at least for now. Like I don't really see a reputation-based system needing to exist or working for some time. I don't think it's necessarily even a priority. Like even if you had an incredible reputation system, like, so what, what are you going to use it for? Like, so frankly, like I'm kind of bearish on reputation. Um, when it comes to limit orders, you know, this is also complicated. Like the earliest versions of zero X had limit orders. Um, current versions of one inch and matcha do have limit orders, but they only get filled when like there's enough MEV for someone to fill it yep. basically like limit orders do exist right now. And like, they're not even bad, so to speak. You're basically just like putting it out there and waiting for there to be enough MEV for a searcher to include it and take your profit from you. Um, but they work like, you know, I know matcha and one inch and like all of those things are functional and Uniswap sort of quasi vaguely functions as a limit order trading venue today. So range orders on Uniswap give an individual the ability to say, you know, I'm willing to sell this at a price that's higher than it is today, or I'm willing to buy it at a price that's lower than it is today and not do anything until it gets to that price. And so when you squint, there's already in Uniswap limit orders. Um, they're just not called that. Um, and people, whether they're individuals or trading firms, actually do have the ability to use it like limit orders in a lot of ways. And so limit orders exist. I think Solana has had a lot more success than Ethereum just in terms of its you know, data structures for implementing limit orders. The limit order books on Solana were honestly quite usable when I looked at them compared to Ethereum. But you know, we'll see if anyone actually implements limit orders, you know, on that chain. Um, you know, the biggest problem historically with limit orders was it costs the transaction to cancel them. Like you literally have to submit an on-chain transaction yep. to say, remove this limit order, whether it's like a matcha or one inch or Uniswap, like range order, like you literally have to do a gassy transaction to cancel. And so the primary question is, if it's on base and, you know, to roll up and transactions cost a hundredth as much as they do on Ethereum, do people care? And will they pay that one cent? Or is it still too expensive from a cost or user experience perspective to be submitting transactions every time you want to cancel an order? One of the best things mm. about centralized exchanges is you can make a hundred orders and cancel a hundred orders like instantly. Like you're not like, submitting transactions and waiting for them to be mined. Like, you know, API-based systems that are like high throughput are like so much better for like orders and limit orders and canceling them than a blockchain is. So I'm a little bit bearish on that RFP as well. Um, and what was the third one? What was the third one? Uh, safer, safer DeFi, which I didn't, let's see. I, I don't know what that means personally. Oh, uh, self-service uh, self security testing tools, auditing services, Threat prevention, circuit breakers, incident response systems. I mean, you guys have had a couple like hand, all hands on deck scenarios in the last couple of years. Like any learnings from those like things that could have been built or not really? Um, it's a great question. I mean, you know, there's constantly, you know, upgrades to like how society at large thinks about like security and best practices, you know. Um, you know, within the compound ecosystem, one of the like, harder things was that it became a distributed, you know, team and process and, you know, ecosystem um, before, you know, other projects. Like it's actually harder if you've like moved to like full on distributed governance, yeah. like flat out. Like when it's still just like one team with admin keys, like it's so much easier to manage security than when it's like 
there isn't a team. <laughs> right, you just jump on a call and you say shut it down and we'll pick it back yeah. up in 10 minutes. Like when yeah, it's centralized, it's so much easier to do security yeah. than when it's distributed. And so, you know, we've definitely gotten to see a lot. I definitely think there's like room for everyone to develop better tooling, but I'd have to really dig into that RFP to understand exactly what their ideas are. It sounds like it's just yeah. like, we want ideas to make everything better and safer, which is cool. Yeah. Like, All right, so if you're not if you're not stoked about any of those Coinbase RFPs, is there anything that you're like, oh my god, like give put a great founder in this company in front of me, and I'm funding them ten times out of ten? Oh, all the time. I mean, you know, when you're investing at the early stage, and Robot Ventures invest, you know, or tries to invest as early as possible, we're really just betting on people, um, right? Right. Mostly because ideas change. And like any rapidly evolving ecosystem like crypto, like what was a good idea three months ago might not work once you try it or doesn't make sense three months into yeah. the future. Like uh, who did I just see pivoted? Um, uh, privacy L1 to uh, Espresso. Mm -hmm. If you, I don't know if you guys did the Espresso, but like, I feel like that's yeah, a good example. That. Like now, yeah. Now, now they realize like the, the way rollups need to decentralize is, uh, is like one of the key foundational building blocks right now. And like they've pivoted away from their, their privacy L1 into, into helping to build that. And that's, that, that's the best example possible, yeah. which is like, you know, founders who understand the systems and like the ecosystem and like what they're trying to do are comfortable being flexible and like skating to where the puck is going and making changes and like rethinking and reevaluating their assumptions. And like, that's exactly the type of founders that we like to back where it's like, Hey, you know, we want to support you, not the idea. The idea can change. Like you should feel empowered to figure out what's going to work and add value and like be useful. <laughs> and like, don't feel like you have to like do yeah. the idea that we funded, you know, like just, you know, be just go, excited. Just go be useful. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah like build something <laughs> that people want, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, well, it's been great. This is a fun, fun conversation. Um, anything else kind of big things, investing landscape, thinking about the next bull market, next cycle, compound, like really anything that's, that's on your mind that we haven't covered? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't really think about bull markets and bear markets and all of that. You know, I, I would just say that, you know, we're at a really interesting juncture where, you know, my biggest hope is that a year from now, there's actually legislation in America that like begins to set some of the rules, you know, for crypto. Like, we still have really not had any crypto legislation, period, full stop. And it's still the only legislation we have is like non-existent. It's just regulation by enforcement. Like yeah. the number one hope for the industry is that there's some legislation that like helps outline how crypto is intended or should exist in the US. Because right now it's just still a complete absence and a complete void of legislation. Yeah. When you, when you had, when you went to DC and when you've gone to DC and you've had conversations with be it pol uh, policymakers, regulators, uh, politicians, lobbyists, whoever it may be, do you feel that they have a sense, like an understanding of like what the compound protocol is or right over their head? Yeah. I, I think, you know, a lot of legislators and policymakers and regulators are still, you know, relatively early in understanding all of these things because the industry is so wide. I mean, there's like literally like, even the word DeFi includes what I would call DeFi protocols and also things that I would say are like absolutely not DeFi protocols, mm -hmm. right? Like including like actual just like Ponzi schemes, right? Yeah, and so like, yeah. like even the basic things like, you know, what are the words? Like there's so many things that go into them and, the you know, these large umbrellas of like activities. And so, you know, I've always just tried to like focus on explaining and educating just, you know, what are the virtues of like why I think DeFi is like powerful and good for society and makes a better world? And, you know, try to also explain like why some things like aren't DeFi, but like it's still like an educational phase for the most part. And like what's cool is like everyone's sort of waking up to the fact that like this is totally new and, you know, they want to learn about it. And there's a lot of excitement to like understand what's happening in this market that's made the news mostly for bad reasons mostly for ftx and 3ac and celsius and genesis and all of the firms that have like imploded in like terrifying ways and so like the challenge that i find is just like trying to educate and say like okay you've heard about it from all the bad things 
but like, so why are people in the industry excited? And like, what are the good things? And like, yep. how do they lead to a, like a more efficient and transparent and like more autonomous financial system? And like, why is that good? And I think there's a lot of excitement for that once you start to explain it. Yeah. Well said, man. It's a good place to end it. Appreciate you coming on as always. This yeah, is fun. Yeah, this was. We'll do it again sometime. Cheers, man.